The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at actschurchleander.com. Cool. Well, we are in the, uh, the final week of a little series we've been doing uh, called The Art of Discipline. And uh, we've been exploring spiritual disciplines for the last three weeks. And so the, the first week we did this, we, we looked into prayer and, uh, and what it is for us to pray. And then last week we explored what it is for us to meditate on God's word. And today we're going to dig into fasting. What does it mean to fast? Um, and, you know, I've been in church for a long time, uh, since, since I was a twinkle in my father's eye, I'd been in church, uh, and I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on fasting. So I don't know if you have either, but, but we'll see how this goes. Uh, and, and we're just going to jump right into it, okay? And, and uh, what we see in our text for today are three things, okay? So the text, it shows us, first of all, how not to fast. Secondly, it shows us how to fast. And then thirdly, it shows us what the end result is. Okay, so it shows us how not to fast, how to fast, what the end result is. So linear thinkers, rejoice. It's a pretty straight shot today, all right? So here we go. Uh, So the text gets into how not to fast, and and God's speaking here in Isaiah 58. And he's speaking, and what he does is is he's describing a group of people uh, that are pursuing him, but there's an issue with how they're pursuing him. There's there's some sort of block between these people and God. Look with me at uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And so this this text describes a group of people that that are earnestly seeking to be near God. They're, they're, they're not false about it. They're sincere. They're actually seeking him. They're, they're trying to connect with him. But we see in verse 1 that there's some sort of transgression. There's some sort of sin. There's something that's preventing them from experiencing that intimacy with God. There's something that's blocking the way between them and God. And so what is it? What is it? What's the issue? Well, in verse 3, we find out what it is. Look with me. It says, Why have we fasted and you see it not? So the people are asking God, Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And then God responds, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. And so what's their sin? See, they're following all the religious rules. They're following the the spiritual disciplines. They're praying. They're meditating on God's word. They're fasting. But they are, end of verse 3, they're oppressing their workers. In other words, they're oppressing those on the bottom end of the socioeconomic ladder. And God has an issue with that. And see, this is a a theme we see throughout Scripture. That when the people of God pursue their own pleasure, when the people of God pursue the own things they want to do, even good things like spiritual things, if you do that but neglect the poor, neglect the needy, God has an issue with that. He's got a problem with it. A couple years ago, I, uh, I came across... Uh, an article uh, on NPR that was about this new uh, charity that was being started in which they, uh, this charity's plan was to just give money uh, to people in developing countries and, and kind of help spur uh, enterprise there and, and help them start businesses. And it was just kind of straight up do that. And, and so I thought it was an interesting idea. I'd never really heard of a charity being that sort of uh, free with just kind of handing things out with no strings attached. And so I put it up on, on my Facebook wall and uh, it actually started this, this conversation as these things do. Uh, and it it brought about two different groups of people. My, my Christian friends uh, responded to it, and my non-Christian friends responded to this article. My Christian friends, actually two guys I went to seminary with, 
uh, were the first two to respond. And they said, oh, this is terrible. It'll never work. It's a bad idea. And they just dismissed it right away. And then my, my two other friends, who are not Christians, said, hey, Gabe, thanks for sharing this. Uh, you know, I don't know if this will work, but uh, my PayPal account just lost $20. We'll, we'll see what happens. I want to support these guys. Now, I'm not sure that this charity is, is really the, the smartest use of, of funds in truly helping people. I'm not sure. But isn't it a shame that the Christians, the people of God, their gut reaction was to dismiss this work? And that the non-Christian, their gut reaction was to show generosity. Is that not a shame? That's an issue. And see, that's what God's getting at in the, in the front end of our text. He's saying, listen, don't come at me with your religious pomp. Don't come with me with your religious practices and then neglect the cries of the poor. Don't say your prayers. Don't sing your worship songs. Don't raise your hands in the air and not care about the needy and not care about the oppressed. God says, don't do that. I'll have none of that. Because you're going to say, God, you feel so far from me. And God will say, I bet I feel far from you because I'm with the poor and you're not. In other words, when you claim to love God, but don't love people, you don't love God. When you claim to love God, but don't love people, you don't love God. When religious activities are done without a deep love for people and for God, God says they missed the point. Right? Just look with me again at, at verse 3. It says, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. So God says, in your fasting, you're seeking your own pleasure. It's, it's all about you. It's not about me. It's not about others. It's about you. So he says, don't fast as if it's all about you. And then look with me at the next couple verses. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And so in these two verses, we see God picks apart what these people call a fast. And really what these people call a fast is, is what a typical definition of what it is to fast. It's kind of how I think many of us maybe would define uh, what fasting is, which is really just to abstain from some earthly necessity or luxury for a time in order to deeper connect with God. That's kind of a, a general definition of fasting, that, fasting, that you abstain uh, from an earthly necessity, food, drink, or luxury, coffee, alcohol, TV, whatever, uh, for a set period of time in order to connect more deeply with God. And there's places in Scripture where that, that way of fasting is encouraged, where that's, that's a good thing to do. And so if you do that, you do that during Lent or whatever, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But what this text is driving at is that if that's it, if, if your only way of engaging God is just you and him, when you engage in a spiritual discipline like fasting and it's just about you and him, it only has a vertical dimension and there's no horizontal dimension to it, he says then you're missing the point completely. If fasting is just about you and God, right here, verse 5 of Isaiah 58, says you're missing the point. See, because fasting is meant to be an act of self-denial. But if your fast is only about you, about making you closer to God, that's not actually self-denial, that's self-service. It's simply advancing your own spiritual agenda. 
And so in this text, God makes it clear what true fasting looks like. He says, don't do that, do this. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your, into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And so what sort of fast does God say he's looking for? He says to loose the bonds of wickedness, let the oppressed go free, share your bread with the, hom- the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, cover the naked. That's the kind of fast that God is after. It's the kind of fast that cares for other people. In particular, cares for the poor and the needy and the oppressed. See, when we speak about the discipline of fasting, it isn't just about abstaining from something you like or want so you earn points with God because that's not how it works. It's about abstaining from something good, something you like or want for the sake of others. See, according to this text, according to Isaiah 58, to fast is to say this, I'll be disadvantaged for the sake of the other. Okay, that's what it is to fast. I'll be disadvantaged for the sake of the other. That's what it is to fast. And so if you truly pursue fasting as a discipline, this will happen, either directly or indirectly. Okay, so if you pursue it as a discipline in in kind of the, the typical term where you abstain from something for a set period of time, but you do it with the focus of being disadvantaged to serve others, it'll happen indirectly. Uh, here's what I mean. Uh, my wife Melissa and I started a tradition a few years ago now where uh, we give up meat for Lent. And, uh, and when we, we started this, uh, we, uh, like, it wasn't that big a deal. We were living in St. Louis at the time, and like, we didn't eat that much meat anyways. But I was like, let's just do this. It'll be a kind of fun thing. Okay, so I was like, this won't be too hard. I was wrong, okay? Uh, I, was, I was in seminary, and uh, I was in a class where we actually went on uh, trips around the country and checked out different church plants. And the trip that we went on during Lent, we went to Arkansas, Texas, and Oklahoma. What are those three states really good at making? Barbecue, right? Of course, Texas is the best, but, but that's like, and, and so not only that, I'm traveling with a group of dudes. Like, it's all dudes in a van. So every single day, we ate barbecue, right? And so my buddies are just filling their faces with, you know, pork and brisket and ribs. And I was just sitting here like, I'll have some more coleslaw, you know, and like, I ate more fried okra on that trip. You know, it just, it was a shame. It was a shame. And, uh, and it may not seem that, like that big a deal, but what happened was uh, this, this fast actually ended up exposing a blessing that I'd been holding on to too tightly. And that blessing wasn't ribs, um, though they are a wonderful gift. Uh, that blessing was friends. It was friends. See, because simply by, by not sharing with these guys in that same food experience, uh, I was outside the social situation. I was like, always the guy in the corner with the coleslaw. And like, it drove me nuts. Like, this may be hard for some of you to believe, but I like being the center of attention, right? I'm on a stage, for goodness sakes, right? So, so it, it drove me nuts that I couldn't be in on everything. And it was then that God worked on me and he said, hey, maybe you should stop focusing so much on being in on everything and start looking for those who are on the outside. Maybe you should start looking for those who are never part of the inner circle. Maybe you should find those who are neglected. 
You see, it's indirect. Temporary fasting has this ability to indirectly force us to look outside ourselves and look towards others. But here's the thing. For really to be true to this text, to Isaiah 58, what it's pushing us towards is not about just a set time of fasting that indirectly takes care of those on the outside. Rather, it's about a lifestyle of fasting. It's about an intentional lifestyle that you choose, an intentional lifestyle that says continually, again and again, I'll be disadvantaged for the sake of the other. That's what it's driving us toward, that the people of God would live a lifestyle of fasting that says, I'll be disadvantaged for the sake of the other. This is what verses 6 and 7 are getting at. Just look at those again. Thanks, Phil. You had them up. Um, and uh, the last line of verse 7, it says, uh, don't hide yourself from your own flesh. Uh, another way to translate that, the NIV translates it like this. It says, uh, don't turn your back on your flesh and blood. And so what's God saying there? What's your flesh and blood? Your family, right? In other words, for the people of God, the church, the people of God, the poor, the oppressed, the suffering are to be seen as our family. Do you hear that, church? The poor and the hungry are your family, and you don't turn your back on your family. You don't do it. And listen, we as a church are trying to love that part of our family well. And that's why we do uh, an offering every week, except, of course, for this week, but every other week, uh, for Hill Country Community Ministries, and we, and we bring food for them. And that's why we so often do love offerings for families in need in our community. And that's why we have sending weekends where we serve those in need. And that's why we have volunteers, mentor teens who are just getting out of juvenile detention. And that's why we have volunteers read to kids in our school district. And that's why we partner with our friends in Link Austin as they care for homeless street youth. And that's why we've raised money to fight sex trafficking and feed hungry kids. And that's why we have a sending community that takes care of the lonely in a nursing home. And that's why we have another sending community that works with Open My World as they minister to kids who have disabilities. And that's why we send people on trips to an impoverished rural mountain village in Guatemala. And that's why we send people on trips to the slums of San Jose, Costa Rica. And that's why we've got a group of people that are spending large amounts of, of their personal time trying to get a teen parent child care center for our church so that we can offer free child care to teen moms so they can finish school that's why we do all that because that's our family that's what the church does and I know I'm actually probably missing some other ministries that we do and I apologize if you lead one of those and I, and I drop the ball in there but, but you get the idea and that may seem like a lot when I string it all together like that but guess what there's still more to do and there's still more we want to do there's still dreams that, that we have of pursuing that I hope you have of pursuing for what it looks like for us to respond to this call that God has for us for a lifestyle of true fasting where we're disadvantaged for the sake of the other. Because the poor and the downtrodden are our family. That's our fast. But it's not just a call for us as a church to love the poor. It's a call for each of you individually to do that. As those who are part of the church, as those who are called as the people of God. See, it makes absolutely zero sense to be a Christian to claim to follow Jesus and do absolutely nothing to help the poor. I would even go so far as to say it's mutually exclusive to be a Christian and do nothing for the poor. It doesn't exist. And so some of you, man, you may, you're like, oh, God, and you may not like what I'm saying. But if you're a Christian, you need to look seriously at how you use your resources. If you're doing nothing to alleviate the suffering of those in need, you're doing nothing to disadvantage for your, yourself for the sake of the other. 
That's an issue. That's what God's saying. Isaiah 58, that's an issue. And I, I, I can't sugarcoat it. I can't make it softer. That's just the truth. That's what God says here. Uh, one of my favorite living philosophers is a, a guy named Peter Rollins. And uh, some of you have heard me share this story before, but, but he tells a parable that I think will really help us uh, shape our minds this morning. And uh, the first part of it will be familiar to you. It goes like this. Uh, Jesus withdrew privately by boat to a solitary place. But the crowds continued to follow him. Evening was now approaching, and the people, many of whom had traveled a great distance, were growing hungry. Seeing this, Jesus sent his disciples out to gather food. But all they could find were five loaves of bread and two fishes. Then Jesus asked that they go out again and gather up the provisions that the crowds had brought to sustain them in their travels. Once this was accomplished, a vast mountain of fish and bread stood before Jesus. Upon seeing this, he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Standing before the food and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks to God and broke the bread. Jesus and his friends ate like kings in full view of the starving people. But what was truly amazing, what was miraculous about this meal, was that when they had finished the massive banquet, there were not even enough crumbs left to fill a starving person's hand. Does anyone else feel sick after I read that? Like, can you imagine if that's how the story really went? Right? Something about Jesus acting that unjust, caring that little for people around him, makes our stomachs turn. And yet, what does Scripture call you? It says you're part of the body of Christ. And so, what's your call? What are you doing? Fasting isn't just about you and God. It's about disadvantaging yourself for the sake of the other. Finally, when you get that, when we get that, our text says that, that the result is something beautiful. Look with me at verses 8 through 10. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. You see, when we truly fast, when we disadvantage ourselves for the sake of the other, something beautiful happens, right? Verse 8, something as beautiful as a sunrise, that's what it's talking about. Verse 10, something as beautiful as as light shining into darkness as night becoming day. God describes this gorgeous picture of what happens when we truly fast. True fasting leads to true beauty. Disadvantaging ourselves for the sake of the other leads to true beauty because that's what we're made for. So I was uh, thinking back on this summer and and just a bunch of different things that I got to do. And and one of my my favorite memories uh, came to mind. So it was, was, uh, I don't even know what day it was. It was a Tuesday. And uh, I got a phone call, and um, it was from Miss Lori, Lori Goggin, who runs Nineveh Ministries, an organization we partner with that helps uh, teens getting out of juvenile detention. And uh, she said, hey, Pastor Gabe, um, there's this girl, and she's in a bad situation. Uh, Her boyfriend's just a bad news guy, and he's at work right now, but she's got a baby, and uh, we need to move her out of her house before boyfriend gets off of work. And I said, okay, well, you know, yeah, I, I got to do this. So, so I said, all right, well, I'm going to do this. And I was like, 
going to get in my car and going to go. And I just thought, like, what do I do if this guy comes back? Like, I'm like, I'm not that tough, you know. Like, we got, we got issues here. I was like, I got to find a dude with some pipes. And so, um, so I, I ran into uh, Matt Daring, who uh, normally plays drums. <laughs> okay, you know him. Uh, listen, I don't have a lot of strong friends, okay. So he was top of the list. And... Uh, and uh, I ran into him. He normally plays drums for us. He's also the, the head of our student ministries. Um, side note, uh, his grandma did just pass away, so if you'd please keep him in your prayers. That's why he's not with us today. Um, get back to the story. So, uh, so I asked Matt, and I said, hey, Matt, would you help me out? I got a, this, this girl's in need. Would you do that? And the thing you need to know about Matt is uh, he works for our church part-time, and uh, he does the rest of his hours at Starbucks. And so he gets up very early, starts at 5 in the morning, he's an opening guy, and he works long hours on his feet, and, and he's really exhausted. I asked him at 1 in the afternoon after he'd worked already like an 8-hour shift that day at Starbucks, and I said, hey, w- would you be able to help me out? Now, now Matt could have very easily said, dude, I am so tired, right? I'm run ragged, I'm sure you'll be fine, just go. But he didn't. He said, all right, I'm in, let's go, let's go right now. Sun's out, gun's out, right? And, uh, and, and we went... And, uh, and we helped this girl out, and, and it was awesome. It went really well. Unfortunately for him, boyfriend didn't come back. We didn't have to crack any skulls, and, uh, and so it was good. Let me say this. I, I've been on vacation this summer. I got to go to Florida. I went, to, went on the beach with my family for a week. It was awesome. Um, I went to a water park. Uh, I took my boy to the zoo for the first time, and all that was really great. I tell you, those two hours spent moving this girl with Matt might be the highlight of my summer. Because there's, there's something beautiful about that. It's, it's the beauty of a sunrise, right? And how does that happen, though? How do we start living lives where that's regularly how we live? How do we stop navel-gazing and stick our eyes out to those in need? Well, I can tell you how we don't do it. We don't do it by guilt. Some of you maybe feel guilty. I'm bringing the law today. Okay, just hang on. Um, and, and that's all right. But, but guilt is not a great motivator because it's always going to be short-lived, you feel guilty and then you do something and then it sort of relieves the guilt and then you go about your merry way, return to navel gazing. Okay? It doesn't work. And it doesn't work by just trying harder. No, no, no. The way we live into this beautiful picture that God's painted for us is to be taken aback by an even more beautiful picture. Here's what I mean. When Jesus was here, Matthew 25, he said this, Whatever you do for the least of these, you do it for me. You do it for me. Whenever you're serving the poor or the hungry or the oppressed, I'm there. You're doing it for me. And see, God identifies with the poor. And let me be clear. He doesn't just have like tender feelings for the poor. He doesn't just sympathize with them. He's not patting them on the head. No, Jesus enters into their reality. That he was born in a feeding trough. That when he went to be circumcised, his his parents could only give two pigeons, the sacrifice of the poorest of the poor at that time. That Jesus himself said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was homeless. So not only was Jesus poor, but he was oppressed. He was a victim of injustice. That he was arrested under false crimes, under false charges. He was thrown before a joke of a court. And then he was beaten and crucified for a non-executable crime that he didn't commit. And yet, he was the God of the universe that created everything. Jesus was poor. He was marginalized. 
He was disadvantaged. He was oppressed. He was treated unjustly. But he did all of that so that you might know him. He went through all of that so that he might take your sins upon himself so that you would know him and the Father for eternity. Man, do you get like how beautiful that is? Like that is mind-blowing. So Harvard English professor, Elaine Scarry, wrote a book uh, called On Beauty and Being Just. And in this book, she makes the case uh, that, that true beauty helps us be more just. And her point is that what happens is when you experience overwhelming beauty, it gets you out of yourself and it makes you distribute your attention to those around us. And I have a, a quote from her up here. She says this, beauty stops us, transfixes us, takes the individual out of his or her preoccupation with self and prompts a distribution of attention towards others. So if you get how beautiful what Jesus has done for you by entering into our poverty, by entering into our injustice, by entering into your sin and going to the cross, if you get how beautiful that is, it only makes sense, it's only natural that your life would become a true fast and that you disadvantage yourself for the sake of others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you disadvantaged yourself for us. You left the glories and the riches of heaven to be born a poor baby. Not only that, though, Lord, you were oppressed, you were beaten down, you went to the cross. But Lord, you did it for us, for our advantage, that we get everything. We get your grace, we get your love, we get a relationship with you, we get eternity with you. Lord, teach us to be overwhelmed by that beauty. And may that beauty teach us to love others. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.